Cantor is a USA Today best-selling author whose latest book, Half-Life, puts double Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist Marie Curie in a what-if path of life, tracking two very different options she could have taken and examining the outcome of both. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's Binge Reading, Gillian talks about the movie that inspired Half-Life, how Madame Curé's scientific papers are still held in a lead box because of their high levels of radiation and how she's retelling F. Scott Fitzgerald's masterpiece, The Great Gatsby, from the point of view of the female characters. But before we get to Gillian, just a reminder, if you enjoy the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you'll receive bonus news of more great books and their authors, as well as having the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting our creative team in producing new and exciting content. But now, here's Gillian. Hello there, Gillian, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Look, you're a USA Today best-selling author. You've got 11 international books for adults and teens to your credit. But your latest book is Half-Life. It's based on the story of the Nobel Prize-winning scientist Marie Curie, and it is an Amazon pick of the month, the best book of the month in literature and fiction for March 2021. So you've got yourself in a great position, haven't you? Yeah, thank you. I was really excited that Amazon chose it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's obviously, it's not the first book you've had chosen as an Amazon um, pick either. So you all feather on your cap. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's it's always really exciting to, to see someone choose the book and support it and have some love for it. So it's very exciting. Yeah. Now, Half-Life is a, a lovely parallel story, giving two versions of the life of the pioneering physicist Marie Curie. And you've said it was partly inspired by the movie Sliding Doors, a Gwyneth Paltrow movie from the late 1990s, where the character is shown having a really contrasting different life, depending on one key event, whether she made a train on time or whether she missed the train. Tell us about how that inspired you. Yeah, so I mean, I've I've always loved that movie, but more than the movie, just sort of the concept itself. You know, I think I think about it in my own life a lot. I think we kind of all do. You know, we kind of all wonder what what would have happened if we had made different choices. You know, I think about in terms of career and school and where that might have led us. So that's just an idea that I've always thought about in my own life. But in terms of half life. I thought, you know, what if this famous scientist had made a different choice? How would not only her life have been different, but the whole world and science as a whole? And thinking about how that could ripple out from there. Yes. In Marie Curie's case, the first life is that she 
marries her first love. And this was actually true to life. She had a relationship where it became very close to getting married. The young man did propose, but it never came to pass. So she goes to Paris to study and work, and we all know what the outcome of that second life was. Mm -hmm. This double life approach is also very interesting when it's somebody as famous as Marie because, as you say, not only could her own life be changed, but global, you know, science could have been changed if she hadn't taken the path she had. So tell us a bit about how the idea excited you. You know, I I was first drawn to sort of writing about this one choice, which was based on fact, as you said. The real Marie was born and raised in Russian Poland, where women were not allowed to be educated, much less have a career. But she had planned to move to Paris to attend the Sorbonne and study She didn't know what she was going to study at first, but she was going to study. And in order to earn money to do that, she worked as a governess. And while she was working for this family, she fell in love with the oldest son. They secretly got engaged and she decided she was going to sort of throw away all her plans, actually stay in Poland and marry him. But when his mother found out, she basically forbade him from marrying her, saying that she was not good enough for his son. He broke up with her and she did move to Paris. But I kept thinking about the fact, you know, what if what if he hadn't broken up with her? What if he had defied his parents? Or what if he had changed his parents' mind? And what if she had stayed in Poland? She never would have been educated. You know, she wouldn't have discovered radium. I still felt strongly that she would have done something in science and she would have found a way to educate herself, but it would have been completely different than it ended up being. So that was sort of what drew me into exploring, you know, the what if angle. Yes, yes. She became the only woman to win the no well, the only person, I think, to win the Nobel Prize twice and the first woman. So she was, she had a really world-changing career. But I understand that this was a tough book for you to write, that you started on it three times. Now, I wonder why the material, number one, seemed resistant at the beginning. And secondly, what gave you the drive to persist with it when it wasn't really coming together as you wanted it to? Yeah, well, I mean, I first was sort of drawn to Marie because I had read an article about her personal life, which I didn't I didn't know anything about before then. And I was sort of drawn into the idea that she had all of this deep personal tragedy in her life. You know, she had all these amazing professional accomplishments and, you know, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the first person to win it twice. But amidst all that, there was always this personal tragedy going on. So I knew that I wanted to write a story about her and sort of get all of that in. And initially I started, I was just going to write a straight biographical novel. I wrote about 50 pages and I sent it to my agent and she read it and she said something to the effect of like, this is fine, but it doesn't feel like a book you would write. (laughs) And, you know, I realized she was she was right. A lot of my books tend to be sort of drawn to like a a what if element or have a unique angle to it. So I felt like maybe I hadn't settled on the right way to tell the story. So then I started over again and I was decided I was going to write about her younger daughter, Eve, who became a writer because she also had a fascinating life. I was very drawn to her. I wrote about 50 pages of that version, but I still just kept feeling like I wasn't telling the story that I needed to tell. And I kept coming back to that one little bit I had read about her and Casimir's, you know, breaking up. Um, And something else that I had read that said that at the end of his life, um, or 
sorry, after she had passed away, there was a statue erected of her in front of her institute in Warsaw. And he used to go there and he would sit and eat his lunch and stare at the statue. And so I just kept thinking, I need to get this moment into my book. This is so interesting. And finally it occurred to me, wait, maybe this moment is my book. Um, and so that's sort of when it clicked with me that I wanted to tell the sort of what if version of her life. Yes. And I started over again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever in any of your previous books had that experience of having to start it again? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've definitely, you know, made false starts or, you know, I haven't been going in the right direction. I I don't know that I've ever started again three times and still stuck with it because there are some things that I've given up on. But, you know, I definitely have started books and then thought, this isn't the right way to tell the story or this isn't the right story I want to tell. So luckily it doesn't happen every time, <laughs> but it does happen. With Marie, it's fair to say that she did find true love in the end. I think her marriage with Pierre was a, a real one of both companionship and love, but she had quite demanding expectations of her daughters in that respect. And in terms yeah. of feeling that work or career should take precedence over private life. Tell us a bit about that. I gather that is really very much reflecting what she was like as a person. Yeah. So, I mean, every everything about her real life in the book is based on what I read in her biographies and is factually based. And so her relationship with her daughter is based on everything that really happened. And her older daughter, Irene, she was very close with from when Irene was pretty young, a young teenager. Irene was very interested in science. They had a lot in, in common in that way. Marie was very proud of her. Irene worked with her in World War I in the field. They sort of pioneered mobile x-rays. Then later, Irene worked with her at her institute. But her younger daughter, Eve, was never interested in science. She became a concert pianist and eventually became a writer. And, and Marie just could not, you know, understand <laughs> why her daughter was attracted to, to the arts more than the sciences. And, and that did cause uh, some conflict between them. But, you know, they also did become closer toward the end of Marie's life and Eve traveled with her a lot. But I, I think one interesting thing about Marie is I, I felt like she really sort of struggled the way a lot of women do with this like work motherhood balance. And even though I'm not a scientist, and I would never win a Nobel Prize, you know, as a mother who works, I felt like I could really relate to her in that regard. And I found that sort of a fascinating avenue to explore in the book as well. Yes, yes. Obviously, both Marie and Pierre, their health was very much affected by the mm -hmm. closeness that they had to the radium. And I gather also Irene's health was affected by her working with x-rays mm -hmm. during the First World War. Yeah. But I think you have said that she didn't really ever blame um, the science for their illness. And, and she actually felt that they had observed rules of safety in their labs, mm -hmm. even when it was quite clear that their health had suffered. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for us, in hindsight, we can really see that all the health problems they were having was 
caused by the radiation exposure, but you know, they didn't know that at the time. And she really believed that she was not, none of her health problems or Pierre's health problems were caused by what they were doing in the lab. You know, people would suggest that to her and she would get angry and she would say, well, we got plenty of fresh air. She was always riding her bike like she does in the book. They would go to the country or they'd go to the beach every summer. So she felt like they were taking precautions. But I, I think that the science she was pioneering was so new that you know, she she really didn't have a, a way to fully know what it was doing to her. All of her papers are still stored in lead line boxes in Paris, I believe, because they're so radioactive. So, so you you know, all of her stuff that was in the lab to this day is still so radioactive that you can't really touch it or see it. That is absolutely amazing, isn't it? It just mm-hmm. says something about what was going on. Yeah. You've written a couple of other historical fiction books as well. Well, set in World War Two, and mm-hmm. but they've all been praised for the quality of the historical research that you've brought to them. Tell us about how you approach a book when you're doing the research for it. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's it really is different depending on the book. I feel like whatever I'm writing about, I have to sort of be obsessed with the topic on my own, and I just have to want to learn everything about it in any way that I can. Um, so, I mean, for Half-Life, there's been a lot written about Marie Curie. There's a lot of biographies that were published, so I, I read them all. My favorite one was the one written by her daughter, Eve, just because I felt like it was such a close personal look, but also written from the perspective of a writer, not from the perspective of a scientist, which I loved. Um, and was also just very fascinating to see what she included as well as what she left out. She actually left out everything about her mother's affair with Paul, just sort of skipped over it like it never happened. <laughs> so I had to kind of catch all that in the other biographies. So so most of my research was biographies. There's also a lot online about her. You know, the Marie Curie Institute also has a great website. But for some of my other books, you know, it's varied. The Lost Letter is about a stamp engraver and a stamp collector. So I had to learn about stamps, which I didn't know anything about going in. And I I went to a big stamp library and museum and spoke with the, the librarians there. And I also went to the Holocaust Memorial Museum to sort of research the resistance. But it's really just sort of about what's interesting me and you know, my own sort of selfish need to learn more about this topic. And then I have the fun of getting to write a book about it too. Yes. The Lost Letter looked at a mysterious love letter and Hmm. the way that it connected generations of Jewish families. And that was set in Austria, wasn't it? And looked at the resistance in Austria during World War II. Tell us about the other historical In Another's Time. So In Another Time is uh, about a a violinist and a bookshop owner in Germany. And it takes place both in like the five or six years before World War II and then the five or six years after World War II. And it sort of alternates their stories. You get to see the, the bookshop owner's point of view before World War II and then the violinist after where she doesn't have any memory of what happened to her. And she has to sort of try to figure out what happened to the bookshop owner that she fell in love with before the war. So that's not exactly, I mean, it is. it does take place around World War II, but it's not during World War II. It's more about sort of the rise of, you know, fascism in Germany leading up to the war and then about the sort of recovery in Europe after the war. 
So it's a little bit different. I've seen a lot of praise for the picture you give of Berlin in those years before the war. I mean, it was a fairly controversial time, wasn't it? They, they, they were living a very sort of fast life in Berlin before the war began. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I was, I was writing that book like right uh, in early 2017, which was, you know, living in America was sort of starting to be a bit of a crazy time here. And it was sort of crazy to see all the parallels between what was happening in the early 1930s Berlin and what was happening in the, you know, 2017, 2018 United States. Yeah. Um, the so sort yeah, of it was, slight rise of right-wing hysteria, that, that kind of mob or fake yeah. news as well. Um, yeah. 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 Mm. Hmm. Look, the book before Half Life, I, I think it might have been one of your teen books, but mm-hmm. a book called The Code for Love. And it featured a college girl, a maths genius, who sets up a matchmaking app and finds that love is rather more complicated than what she might have imagined. This mm-hmm. is quite a definite change of pace from the books we've been talking about up to now. Tell us a little about how you got to write The Code for Love. Yes. um, The Code for Love and Heartbreak is a young adult novel. It's a reimagining of Jane Austen and Emma, but it's set in modern day high school. So it's a contemporary novel. It's not a historical novel. My, My main character is a teenage girl, you know, not an adult woman. But in a lot of ways, you know, I felt like it's similar to my other books. I'm sort of always drawn to strong female characters and strong female stories. And so The Code for Love and Heartbreak definitely fits that vein. But it's it's a little it's a little lighter and a little more fun too. <laughs> so it's fun to write. It's interesting that, you know, the the stereotype for women is that they're they're very empathetic, great connectors, that they're the Mm -hmm. communicators and families and that kind of picture. And Emma is not really like that. You say at one point that she's a genius at math, but not so great with people. And there was a little bit of a similarity there with Marie and the way that she was very businesslike in her relationships Mm -hmm. in the lab. Like she, it was work first and and socializing very much came a second in her life. Do you think that sometimes women have to bear the cost of really focusing on their work if they want to get ahead and sometimes can't afford to be that social creature that society kind of expects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think that's true today as much as it was during Marie Curie's time. So, you know, Emma experiences that in my modern day high school as well as Marie did, um, you know, in the early 1900s in Paris. But yeah, I mean, they are they are sort of similar. Emma says throughout the book that math is better than people because math makes sense and people don't. And I think Marie probably felt that way about science in a lot of ways too. Yeah, she could she could understand and anticipate what science might do, whereas with people it was rather more unpredictable. And I think with Marie too, I mean, she had so much tragedy in her life from a young age. Her mother died when she was pretty young. One of her sisters died when she was pretty young. I mean, you know, not to give spoilers for the book, but she has, she has a lot of tragedy befall her. And so it's like the, the lab is the place where she can sort of always find, you know, her, her home and it makes sense. Whereas these other tragedies don't always make sense. Yeah. You've got one coming out in in a few months' time, or maybe it's early next year. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's another historical, and once again, it examines 
the role of women in famous situations that have already been explored in other ways. It's a reimagining of The Great Gatsby from the point of view of three of the key women characters. Tell us how you came to do this, which once again is a bit of a change of pace from what you've been doing with the other books. Yeah. So, I mean, The Great Gatsby has always been one of my favorite novels. You know, it's one that I come back to and reread um, every few years or so. And I sort of always find something different to admire about it. But I've always wondered about the women and <laughs> and what the women were thinking and what they were doing when they were off the page. I mean, Fitzgerald doesn't focus on them very much. The, the book's narrated by Nick, who is a man and also sort of an outsider, but it's also very focused on Jay Gatsby. And so my novel explores Dave Daisy and Jordan and Myrtle and her sister, Catherine. It takes place like in the five years leading up to the summer of the Great Gatsby and sort of extends a little bit afterwards. And I keep saying it's sort of like Big Little Lies meets the Great Gatsby because there's also a mystery with Jay Gatsby's murder and you get to see how all the women were involved with him. So it was a really fun book to write. Um, And, you know, it is different than Half-Life in a lot of ways, but I think, again, all of my work sort of tends to focus on like women's perspective, strong women's roles and and Beautiful Little Fools definitely does that too. Is it the only book you've had with a murder in it so far? Oh my goodness, you're stumping me. I'm not sure. (laughs) No, no, it's definitely not. My novel, The Hours Count, which is told from the point of view of one of Ethel Rosenberg's Nate a neighbor actually begins with someone running over someone with a car. So no, it's not my only murder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did think for a minute though. (laughs) Yes. I know many writers when you, when they get to the level of where you've written 11 books, it's quite hard to remember back to the very early ones. Yeah, I know it is. I get very focused on what I'm doing at the moment and I put all of my mental energy into it. And even in previous books, sometimes I can't remember the names of the minor characters if I'm, you know, Skyping with a book club or something. It's very embarrassing sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Look, turning perhaps to look at your wider career away from the focus on the specific books, Mm. tell us a bit about your life and career before you started writing fiction. Did Did you have a kind of life outside of your home before you started writing full-time? I taught college for about 10 years. I mean, I went to college, I went to graduate school, and then I taught for about 10 years before, but I was writing at the same time. So the answer to that is yes and no. You know, I did have a job outside of my house that wasn't writing, but I was also writing at the same time. And that was teaching in English and literature, was it? Yeah. 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 How did you make that sort of switch to fiction writing or was it something you always wanted to do? No, I always wanted to, I, not always, but when I started writing, I knew that I was going to write fiction. When I first started, I majored in English when I was in college and I, for a few months, I thought that I was going to go into journalism. And then I had an internship with the paper and just like absolutely hated journalism. I was very bored. <laughs> so I realized the type of writing I like is fiction. So it was it was pretty early when I started writing that I knew that I was going to write fiction. And, and when I was teaching, I was definitely working on my novel at the same time, you know, trying to sell my novels. So they kind of went hand in hand. What was the very first one that you published? Uh, It was called The September Sisters, and it was a young adult novel. It came out in 
2009, I believe, and it was about a teenage girl whose older sister disappears and sort of what happens to her life in the aftermath. Hmm. That's interesting. Also parallels with Big Little Lies again, really, I think. Wasn't yeah. that the one where somebody disappears? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but published before Big Little Lies that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, no, I'm sure. <laughs> So when you look back and, and consider your pathway in, as a writer, is there one decision that you feel or one quality of talent or skill that you've brought to your work that has helped you with your breakthrough as a creative person? You know, I think just perseverance in general. I think, you know, write, writing on its own is hard. I mean, I Half-Life was my 10th novel, but I started over three times, like I said. <laughs> so, you know, re- writing and getting it right and revising is hard, but then publishing is also hard on top of that. And there's a lot of rejection. And, you know, if you if you give up after you hear no, you just really can't get very far in publishing because you will hear no a lot. So I think just sort of persevering, pushing through, just keeping on writing through all of that. Yeah. And is there anything that you would change with the benefit of hindsight now? Well, I feel like every book that I wrote, whether it ultimately was published or or not, did sort of help me write or grow as a writer. I mean, um, so I don't know that I would I would change anything because I feel like if I did, it wouldn't have gotten me where I am today. Yeah. And so are there any unpublished manuscripts in the bottom drawer? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> there are several. I do think that people who want to be writers, that's very encouraging to hear that because, you know, sometimes we are left with the impression that people like you who obviously have had a successful career, you just just all plain sailing. So it's quite nice to hear that you do have to sometimes overcome uh, knockbacks. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I think it's usually not clear sailing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just a lot of challenges in writing and publishing, but I love to write and I don't think I could do anything else even if I wanted to. So, you know, you just have to keep at it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Look, turning to Gillian as reader, because we are the joys of binge reading and people who listen to this podcast, I I often think they are looking for new books they want to read and new authors that they want to follow. Tell us a bit about your reading tastes. Are you a binge reader or just a very uh, committed reader? And what recommendations would you have for our listeners? I'm definitely a binge reader and I tend to sort of like read in a big chunk when I'm not uh, working on a book. So a lot of times when I'm working on a book, I don't read at all. I'll, I'll read research and I'll read nonfiction, but I don't read any fiction. So when I finish a book, then I have to catch up. <laughs> and it's not that I stop buying books. I just continue to buy books constantly. And then they just pile up in my office. And then when I'm sort of in between writing, I binge read all of them. So definitely binge reading. And, you know, I read a wide variety. I read, I mean, I read historical fiction, of course, but definitely don't read historical fiction while I'm writing historical fiction. I read YA, I read romance, I read mysteries and thrillers. So I just, I read a wide variety of stuff. I just finished actually like two days ago, I finished the book, The Plot, which was really interesting. It's a, it's about a writer, which I loved. And I'm, I just ordered the new Reese Witherspoon pick. I think Seven Days in June, it's called. So I think I'm going to read that next. That looks really good. Fantastic. 
So do you know who the plot, who's the author of the plot? Um, oh, my gosh. I, I don't have it in front of me right now. It's, oh, don't worry. I'll be able yeah. to find it. You'll be able to find it. It's, yeah. I think yeah. it's like a bestseller. It's doing really well. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back down the tunnel, tunnel of time and looking forward again, what's next for Gillian, the writer? We've mentioned the Gatsby one that's coming out next, but what are you working on now? And have you got any new projects? So, I mean, I really, I just finished the the copy edits for Beautiful Little Fools, which comes out January 4th in the U.S. So it's been about, I think, three weeks since that's been completely done. So I I haven't really started anything new. I, I have a little idea that I'm not going to talk about that I've been playing around with and we'll see where it goes. I'm definitely in my binge reading stage right now. It's great. And it's always interesting to me, some writers have a little notebook where they've got all these masses of new ideas and they almost know immediately what their next book is going to be. But it sounds like you're someone who likes to take stock and just give yourself a little space before you decide what's next. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have a notebook because I'm not that organized, but I do have, I always write down ideas on the notes app of my phone. So I have a lot of like random notes in the notes app of my phone. And I, I do ha- sort of have an idea of what I'm going to do next, but I do need to take a little time just to figure out how I'm going to write it and what exactly I want to be saying. So I'm not going to, I haven't started just yet. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm sure that you do like to make contact with your readers. And with this year we've had of pandemic, it's been harder to have face-to-face contact. So Mm -hmm. how do your readers find you online and and where do you most prefer to communicate? Sure. So JillianCantor.com is my website and there's a, a form on there on the contact page if you want to email me directly, but it also has my social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, I see messages on there. So yeah, any of that. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Has the pandemic affected you too much? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's affected all of us, yeah, especially yeah. in the US. In terms of my writing, you know, I was still able to write, which was great, but you know, it's affected us in a lot of ways, I think. Yes. Yeah. Probably not with a launch of a book, though. I'm just, did you have something that came out last year that was affected? Well, I mean, happily it came out in March and it was it was really before everyone was vaccinated. So I, I do think that was, that was definitely a different sort of launch, you know, with, without really being able to go somewhere um, or I actually have not been in a bookstore and seen it in person yet. I, I'm vaccinated now. I really, I should go to a bookstore now, but I miss that sort of joy of the first week of walking into a bookstore and seeing my book somewhere. I haven't actually done that yet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully with Beautiful Little Fools, you'll be able to do that. I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. We'll have the links for all of these uh, social media links and your books on the show notes for this episode, which will be posted online. So people can easily find them and follow up if they want to. Look, thanks so much, Gillian, for being with us today. It's been great talking. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. 
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.